2: Hi, and welcome to the Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Angela Whitehorn, and we have a very, very special guest on today, and I know this is going to excite some of you, especially if you're my age, Angela's age, probably more than our younger listeners. We have Pete Orta with us. He was in the band Petra. He's got a Grammy. He's done all kinds of great stuff out there and now is a pastor. And we're going to talk to him about his time in Petra, how he got from being in Petra to being a pastor and all sorts of other things in between. So, Pete, we're really glad that you joined us.
1: Hey, man, I'm glad to be here. This is going to be fun.
2: (laughs)
0: We are excited. A real star (laughs) on Theology Gals
1: come on, man, let me be the only pastor out there trying not to be a rock star.
0: Yeah, I w- Can you sing us a few bars of the coloring song? I know that's coloring. Time. yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And, and if you I don't know who song. Petra is, you just go look them up on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen to music because they started in the 1970s. Yeah. And a little fun fact, when I was about... I think about 12 years old, 10, 12 years old. My mom, for Valentine's Day, which we're actually recording on Valentine's Day, bought me two uh, cassette tapes. One of them was Amy Grant, Age to Age, and the other one was Petra, and I can't tell you which album. So those are my very first christian music cassette tapes i was just
0: gonna say i know i know i still have petra cassette tapes probably all of them (laughs) we we have them in they might be in the attic but i do still have them under my roof we are dating
1: ourselves (laughs) i thought women didn't do that
0: well yeah colleen and i are ageless
1: (laughs) (laughs) you're age fluid
2: yeah, that's right. This is the yes, that's
1: right. time where we can be age fluid. That's
2: I right. identify as a 29-year-old.
1: <laughs> hey, I identify as a 70-year-old. I want my check.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so. Give me my I,
1: social security.
2: I think we're going to start with, with this. Why don't you tell us. We've already you, started. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell us how you ended up being in Petra.
1: Oh, my goodness. Are you serious? I I told you you we're going to put
2: you on the spot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see. I had a, I worked at a music store in Lubbock, Texas. It's no longer, um, can you hear that train passing by?
2: I I can't.
0: Oh, you could. Okay. Yes. Is this editing? Oh,
1: I don't know. I would keep it. You know why? I'm in an, I'm in an old train station hotel that was built in 1893
2: That's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, it's a historic uh, place, and the tracks still run through. But anyway, um, so I'm a West Texas kid, and I worked at a music store there. Um, And I had a buddy of mine that worked in the keyboard department. So I had a great relationship with him. He went on vacation once to Nashville. And he came back to tell me all about it and was pretty excited. And he looked at me, and he was a believer at the time, still is at the time. I wasn't, um, but he said, hey, man, uh, I feel like God is telling me to go to Nashville. And at that time, of course, I just looked at him and said an explicit word and said, well, you need to get the explicit word out of here then, you know, if God's telling you this kind of stuff. And that was my advice. So anyway, he ended up going um, and got involved, tried to make it. I think you would admit now he wasn't probably a very good keyboard player, but he ended up landing uh, at a booking agent, uh, Greg Oliver Booking Agency, which I think is still going. And he worked there. He got involved and was trying to get me to go up there. He kept calling me at the music store. Uh, His name was Russ Lloyd. And I would just tell him to leave me alone. Like I didn't understand what he was talking about. And then he called my wife and said, your husband is going to rot away there if he doesn't get his talent out. And so because of the pressure and me being an Elvis fan, I agreed that I would go out there on a vacation to do an audition for a particular um, tour that was going to happen, as long as I got to go to Graceland.
0: Oh yeah, Memphis. you know I Stop. grew up in Memphis. So did you? Yes, I did. Yeah, n- never actually went to Graceland. <laughs> 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 I lived lived there most of my life until well twenty years ago. But
1: maybe BB King's bar? No. <laughs> No? Yeah,
0: I've been to Beale
1: Street many times, but yeah, man. Anyway, I'm an Elvis nut. I've got stories. Oh, no. yes. Um, so I end up going out there. I end up doing this, um, this audition for this group that this guy was doing a solo record for. Uh, I was super excited. Uh, I actually had my gallbladder out at the time, and. I was I couldn't lift my gear, so I had my friend help me and load the amp, and I did this audition and ended up getting the gig. Long story short, uh, I did a few shows. I moved out there. I did a few shows. It fell apart. And the lead singer was like, felt bad that I, my wife and I drove out there. We bought a house. We got settled and ready, and, you know, it just, the bottom fell out, so I worked at a shoe store. My wife worked somewhere else, and uh yeah, we were just trying to make it happen. So he said, hey, listen, I've got another band, and we need a guitar tech. Have you ever teched before? I'm like, well, what is a tech? And he described it, I'm like, that's what I did at the music store. Man, I can fix guitars and rewire this and do that, and yeah, sure, I'll take care of it. So I went, and... um Gosh, do I tell the story? <laughs> so I'll just tell it. I, I, I'll I'll tell it in 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 the best light. So I went, and they had a interim type guitar player at the time uh, for this band. It was not Bob Hartman. I had no idea, but it was for Petra. It was not Bob. I want to make that statement. So there was this guy in the middle, and you know to uh, speak. To give him the benefit of the doubt, we were all young. So he was a bit of a punk. And I set up his guitar rig And anyway, He decided he was going to bully me a bit on the tour bus. And uh, I got up and I slapped him in the face with my baseball cap. Told him if he touched me again, I'm going to dislocate your jaw. <laughs> and went to my bunk. And I thought, well, I just lost my job. Um, two weeks later, I get called in after that run and said, hey, we've had some problems. And I thought, yep, that's me. I said, no, um, we're handling some things and there's some private things within the band. And they said, how would you like to be the guitar player for Petra? So...
2: Wow. Wow.
1: Well, it was because of when I was out and I was very upset with the guy. I ended up setting up his um, rig. And usually I just do a sound check and hand the guitar back. But I ended up doing a solo uh, out of pure frustration. And the sound guy over the PA said, did anyone hear the guitar tech just outplay the guitar player? And (laughs) anyway... (laughs) quite a statement and I got called in two weeks later and, uh, there it was, but, um, uh, not to put any bad light on, on anybody or any situation. Like I said, we were all young and I bet, uh, it was just as much of a punk back then as well. <laughs> you don't have to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> it was very strange. It's very barbaric. Well, that's how it got. I mean, it was just from one chain of event to the, to the next. And, uh,
0: well, you know, it, it's a really interesting story. I'm sure there's lots of wild behind-the-scenes stories that we can't even imagine. I think a lot of people kind of imagine that uh, Christian music is probably uh, very um, buttoned up and holy compared to <laughs> the rest yeah. of music, but, you know, that we're still sinners. There's a lot of characters, and, um, you know, maybe some are not even really believers, but... Yeah, uh, I know I mean, that that's part of your story. You want to talk about what your faith was like and your beliefs while you were in the band?
1: Well, um, you know, I will say this: that the Christian industry, I have a heart for. Uh, those guys are my peers, and of course, you've got you know new artists that have come out, and mm-hmm. uh, you know they're doing they're doing um, an amazing work. I mean, they're really there's a lot of sincere people Mm -hmm. and record companies and execs that are trying to be the light in the world there. And just, and I'll tell you, it's, it's hard to balance. It is, uh, it's hard not to be pragmatic. Uh, If if there's no album sales, then, you know, we, we, it, it, nothing would exist anyway. So they're, they're trying to navigate through it all. And I would just, um, you know, I just wanted to preface by saying that, you know, my band Petra, they they were the real deal, um, and there's a lot of real deals that I work with, and you know there are a lot of private things that do happen uh, within the industry and amongst artists, and there's this kind of close knit uh, group, but it's it's kind of a safety area because you know you, you you're you're looked at to under such a microscope that it's nice to be around other artists and industry people and nothing really leaves Nashville. You know, The you could be struggling and going through this, and it's just amazing how, you know, man, you, you could be at a church that you can't control information or the narrative or the gossip or anything like that, but you've got in a, a whole city that tries to respect its artists and to let us go through the different seasons of life that, that uh, we need to go through, we need to experience and not have it blasted everywhere. I hope it hasn't changed. So. The wonderful thing that I that I thought about Petra as I, you know, have kind of grown up is that it being a rock band, there was a lot of grace and liberty there for me to, to grow. And I know there were a lot of things and areas that they could probably see where, you know, I just wasn't lined up right at all. Um, but to have that kind of that home to say, hey, you know, we're here and we're going to iron this out. We're going to work it out and we're going to make it happen. And, um, you know, I remember being in that mind frame, not being a believer, uh, but someone, somewhat, uh, somewhat feeling just the culture of, you know, it's, it's safe here. And mm. man, I wish that more churches had that where we could kind of work it out amongst ourselves and not have everything just blasted out there.
0: And so for our listeners who were just listening in when you just said that you weren't a believer, can you clarify you were not a believer when you were in the band Petra?
1: No, I wasn't. Um, Tell us
0: a little bit about what your faith was like. and
1: I was a a deist Mm. and I didn't, back then, um, we didn't have these, you know, it was a thing back then, but we didn't have these labels like we do now. You know, now it's, it's kind of cool, and it's a fad to say, no, I'm an atheist. It's, it's, mm. it's kind of relevant today. But back then, I didn't know. Now that I kind of know the different terms and where I, I fell, I can say that that's where I was. But I grew up hearing the American gospel, which is um, no repentance. Um, it is a, a gospel that, of course, Charles Finney got us all started in, which is, ask Jesus into your heart and you're saved. And I did that number, had no idea about lordship at all. And so my Christianity, of course, I had kind of a rough upbringing, and I lived on the streets for about a year and a half in my car. And so I've got this kind of rags-to-riches type story. And when you're going through that kind of uh, self-improvement, self-help, you know, better yourself, you know, in the 80s, everybody's got that kind of rocky spirit. Um, you do give credit to that moment that you said a prayer. Um, it's almost like a blessing that you got over your life. That's how you feel. And there was a point in my life, there was a season that everything I touched turned to gold. Nothing fell apart. Everything worked out. And I went from lit- the literal streets all the way to just opportunity to opportunity uh, where I was, you know, touring in probably the biggest band in Christian music. And um and so my theology was my my worldview, what my worldview was. I mixed it in. And so I man, I was I would tell people, hey, you know, uh give your life over to God and look what happens. He takes something that was awful and he creates this. And so I had this this um idea but then, as things started, um, of course, what goes up must come down. As that, as things weren't developing, and I was kind of missing out on opportunity, and this contract wasn't being renewed, or this and that, I came. I determined that well, prayers and things like this, and God is just not involved. And uh, enough situations in my life, I started telling my wife that, and it would really upset her because she was raised in church and she was a believer at a very young age i think 5 or 6 years old or maybe even younger than that <clears throat> she remembers it and it was sincere and she did do the jesus into her heart you know i'm not saying that that method isn't you know everything you know nobody saved that says that prayer but it just it kind of gives an easy believism, um kind of a a, a gateway to that And so, you know, she was very upset by where I had landed. Uh, But you couldn't argue with me because Christians were dying uh, from cancer, and people were praying for them, and non-believers were going into remission and not dying. And, you know, you look, you know, an American Christianity, you can look at this and this and that, but when you look at the world and you look and you try to line up the truth with the world and... Uh, people are starving in other countries and that kind of thing. I'm like, God is not involved. There is no way he's involved. Otherwise, our situation could change with prayer, and it's not. And I've asked him, and I've begged, and I'm being ignored. So, you know, I think during a a thunderstorm one night, I remember grabbing a just upset with my life and angry at God. I grabbed a box of uh, handful of Q-tips in the bathroom and I went outside on the front porch and I screamed at God and I threw the Q-tips up in the air and I said, clean out your ears, I'm here. That's where I landed. Um, Pure deism. And I was pretty set uh, in that.
2: So how did you go from where you were just um, describing right now to... Coming to Christ and studying theology and the Word of God.
1: I started. Um, well, I started just like I said. Things weren't getting bigger and better and faster and quicker, and things started kind of flattening out. Um, and I was really, really struggling through some things, and I was I was struggling uh, in my career. Uh, I was struggling uh, in just private areas. <clears throat> it also bled over to my marriage, um, completely, completely falling apart. And, you know, I I see people now that I try to plant some seed and preach the gospel to, but it's very difficult when somebody is climbing the mountain. Uh, they're very blinded by their own success. I had to talk to a guy last month that was just like, God hears all my prayers, you know, and he's this custom home builder and very successful. And I just stayed real quiet, was like, man, I mean, when, when men are, and women are on their way to success and things are lining up in their life, there is just no way to preach the gospel. I mean, the rich young ruler to, to, to the T. So when the Lord started, as I know, my, doctrine now, the Lord started to withhold certain things that would give me the idea that I was living this blessed life by God and that I was okay with Him. So when it came to my philosophy in life and success and um and and things like this, it my philosophy fell apart. Like I always had this saying that, you know, don't take advice from somebody that doesn't have the results that you desire. Well, I no longer could produce the results that even I wanted. So something in my thinking had to be wrong. And I knew that I've never been too much about placing the blame. I've always been, you know, uh, self, just self-aware of things. And so I started challenging my way of thinking and my sin got so bad And I don't want to be, you know, a 1985 guy that's going around just preaching testimony and trying to make the bad stuff look cool instead of glorifying God. I don't want to do that. But it was so bad and disgusting and humiliating now that there was no question that I wasn't saved. You know, God took away the success to show how ugly I truly was. Cause you really don't know how ugly someone is when they're succeeding. Everybody looks amazing. Every star, mm-hmm. every actor, every person, you know, when people are, when people are, are doing well, they are charming. They are charismatic. They are just, you know, they are just the, the, the unicorn dancing across your field. And, and it's this, it's this thing you buy and you believe into. So, He had to start withholding things and just allow me to be still, which is frustrating for me. I'm a recovering overachiever. So um, when I was doing a lot of shows and I was in Texas and I contacted a ministry with a pastor that I did a few concerts with. And I remember kind of just going in and saying, hey, and just trying to get a. A feel for things every once in a while, and just kind of stop by and say, hey, so I'd be there for business in San Antonio, Texas. And I ended up, you know, with uh, getting to know this pastor uh, and his family. His name was Freddie Garcia. He wrote uh, Outcry in the Radio," And I was there, and I remember sitting across the table, and I was in a suit, and I drove up in my convertible Beamer, and I just wanted to come in and say hey to Pastor Freddie, and, and I sat down there, and his in his kitchen and we were having a cup of coffee and they brought us some lunch. And then he said, Hey Pete, uh, Hey, what's going on, man? And I said, Oh man, pastor Freddie, I'm just trying to get ahead. And he looked at me and he kind of leaned forward and he said, get ahead of what? And I'm, I, I, I was stumped. I couldn't think of what I was getting ahead of. And it kind of started working from there. And so when my life, when I couldn't get ahead, and things weren't lining up, and the Lord started just crushing everything in my life so that I would look up, I ran to him and his family, and I just cried out. And I said, I, what is wrong with me? You know, what is wrong? And they're like, you, you know nothing about God. And I remember they told me to bring my Bible, and they held my own Bible up, and they said, you, you, you know nothing about this book. And they taught me about Jesus. This is after my career, and even a solo album called Born Again, and taught me about the the Bible and taught me mostly about the the sinful character that I had. My wife and I were men on the uh, the the eve of divorce, and she went to Pastor Freddie's wife, Ninfa, and both of them and their family included, their sons were a big help. Uh, led us to the cross, didn't try to fix our marriage, but by default it did. And so I was instructed to step off the stage and start getting discipled and start sharing with my wife and discipling my wife. And my, I only had two kids at the time. They were really, really young. And this is all that I needed to focus on. So I did um so i do what i i'm kind of a autodidactic i i'm a self-taught person and i did what i did with music so when i was young i um what i did with music people it's like well i my my favorite you know my favorite one of my favorite guitar players is eric clapton so then i would dig into eric clapton read guitar player magazine and find out he was with Derek and the dominoes find out that he played in this band called cream and then you know you find out oh his influences man one of them was like robert johnson and well who's robert johnson and man he he was in san antonio texas and recorded a live album in a hotel in 1938 and all this kind of stuff and then you find out you know my uh um, one of my guitar heroes back then was uh eddie van halen well man how did he learn how to play that and the hammer-ons and you know where did he get that from and you find out in interviews oh well he listened to a guy named alan holdsworth well who's alan holdsworth and how did he do and i just started going back and Becoming a music historian, I find out how a guitar was made, uh, Les Paul and Leo Fender and uh, the log, and how they took a record player needle and put it under the saddle and do all this kind of stuff. To fighting against the feedback, and you know how uh, Jim Marshall uh, tried to create a, a jazz amp that was really default, kind of just faulty in a way, and it would start to distort until a guy named Jimi Hendrix thought it was wonderful, and I just dug in, dug in. I could tell you every the string height and the, the caliber of this and everything of every player and would just mimic and become and find it help me find my voice. And I did it with theology. And I thought when I came to Jesus and literally like snot running, tear falling on the floor of pastor Ferdy's bedroom, crying out to God, I was so grateful that I told the Lord, I said, man, I have just geeked out and studied and became and, and just to the best of my ability mastered music from compressors to to converters to you know two inch tape to the pro to pro tools to touring to marketing to you know songwriting and all of the stuff that even reading contracts and dealing with attorneys and dealing with record executives and all the education that i got i'm going to put that in learning the bible and that is my life goal and i said i'm i i am so grateful I love you so much for the wiping away my guilt. It was I cannot, I don't have to explain. You guys understand the guilt that he wiped away because of how disgusting my life became, um, and the and and then the guilt of that I had to carry in in my marriage and the guilt as being a horrible uh, father starting out. You know, I didn't have a good start and. Um, and then my sin before God and things started bothering me. I didn't have a conscience like that. And then things were really starting to bother me. And all of that weight, he allowed, he just revealed my sin and let me carry it. And then I came to him. And I was so grateful that that weight was gone that I pursued the Bible. So I went out and bought a dummies book, it's the very first book I ever bought, uh, Bible for Dummies. And I studied the papyrus paper, and I just studied I studied the um, the berries that uh, was used for the ink. Um, you know that was the scriptures were written on. And then I was, you know, it kind of shook my faith here and there because I found out there was two Bibles. What in the world? You know, how could this be? And I was shook up. And then I was like, okay, what is this Mesoretic text? And then what is the Septuagint text? Oh, oh, okay, those are just two interpret. You know, just not interpretations, but one was Greek, one was Hebrew. Well, which one had the authority? And then you find out, uh, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, and like, I don't know, 46 came in and and um, set the Septuagint as even more authoritative. And you st- I just started digging, 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 digging. And then I started finding preachers that I really liked. And I started digging in like I did uh, with musicians and go, well, who did they like? And who do they like? And who do they like? And I started landing into the Spurgeons that led me into the Puritans that, I mean, it just it just exploded, and then I started studying doctrine and then church history. If you know your history, you know your heresy. Um, and what is homiletics, and what is Christian hermeneutics, and what is apologetics? And I think just 10, I put about 10 years all day long is all I did, and it was just nuts, because I'm an extremist like that, so... um after a few years of that, he called me into the ministry. I had no idea that that's what he was preparing me for.
0: That is really amazing. I'm kind of wondered as you were talking, Pete. Um, when was the first time you heard the gospel? Was that from your friend Freddie?
1: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I heard. Listen, I you, you can, and I, and I'm not blaming anybody because it, mm-hmm. it it's the Holy Spirit's timing. I I, I understand the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm but i can't count how many pastors around the world i've met i cannot count how many believers i've been around i can't count how many churches i've been in i can't count how many christian radio interviews i've done in magazines and things like this there's so much talk about jesus there's so much talk about the church there's so much talk but talent covers a multitude of sin and people assume the worst thing that they could have done and I know God has this timing, but I wish I could have become a believer a lot younger and a lot, you know, a lot sooner. It, it would have made my Christian music industry that much more richer. But to assume somebody's a believer is probably the worst thing that happened to me. I, I, it, 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 and I don't do it now. I mean, yeah. e- even at my church, you know, somebody's like, well, I'm a, you know, we're a Christian. We've been Christians for a while and we just want to come visit your church. I don't assume they're a believer because it all came. Like it all came down to lordship. I mean, when I start, when it was like, Lord, I give you everything, and I repent of my sin, and you're, the level of sin is the level of holiness that you see God and His Son, and that real gospel there was just, and it was very simple. It wasn't anything heady. Uh, and I and I always try to remember that when I'm evangelizing and and when I'm preaching and uh, anytime I'm sharing the gospel because Reformed people are you know we're we're known to be a bit heady and intellectual bullies at times especially when we're in the cage stage. Um, so I'm it, it was just a beautiful moment that uh, it was purely the Holy Spirit. It was being taught the Word, and it was a heart that uh, the Lord prepared. Um, to give up, I, I, I had to, you know, well, I was, I felt just, I felt rated. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like it was a choice. I felt rated a matter. I mean, I wouldn't, my life was so amazing. I would have never chosen this route ever. So it had to be the Lord.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You, you know, I'm wondering in the Christian music industry, if there is any emphasis on knowing the word of God and sound doctrine, I'm sure that differs, you know, with different people, but you, you were in one of the most popular Christian bands, not even a Christian. So I'm wondering how much that's emphasized behind the scenes.
1: Well, you know, I remember being asked if I was a Christian and You know, of course I said yes because I believed in a God, you know. Uh, I even believed in the God of the Bible. Hmm. You know, I wasn't going to argue that. But I think a lot of it is the pressure that's put on us. It's two-way street. We're responsible. We're completely responsible for the lyrics we're putting out. But it it is a man-centered gospel that even if we are saved, um, it is about... It is about, music is about striking an emotion, and sometimes the only emotion we know how to identify with is the emotion about how we feel. You know, I just think we're unprepared. That's all. I don't think the Christian music industry is bad. I'm not a guy that's uh, one of these whistleblowers uh, mm. that, that could, I mean, I could, you know, we live in a culture now where everybody's on a witch hunt, and yeah. it's, it's easy to be that guy. It's easy to be on, you know, be on the side that, you know, you've never put out a body of work to be critiqued. You've never, you've never put out an album. You've never, you know, you've never put out a book and r- wrote ideas and then evolved from that and grown from that and go, oh man, I'm kind of a different person now. I've kind of grown mm-hmm. and I've seasoned and and oh well, that's out there. And so a lot of these watchdog type people, I'm not saying all of them, but man, just it's easy to have the critical eye. So I'm not a guy that's against the CCM industry. Matter of fact, I have a huge love. I would love for at some point, the Lord to send me back in to some degree and just be there with my brothers and sisters and preach the gospel to those that are not saved and encourage those that are saved to be a little bolder about their faith and what the Bible truly says, and even record executives to go, you know what, there's a vetting process. You you know, not. it's not only having a talent uh, of, of being able to write hooks and uh, and to be able to Poetically grab stories in the Bible and little phrases and make them rhyme and stuff like this, but you know we're just not theologically uh, equipped to be ministering. But I think that's overall the church as a whole. I think I think that anybody that goes out that's uh, uh, missionaries they don't have really good theology that doesn't mean that they're not bad and their hearts i mean that they're bad and their their hearts aren't sincere but for some reason um the we've got we've got the 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 positions that we kind of um find that are better positions more uppity positions and those people should have the PhDs and the education and everybody else that deals with the the dirty people or the arts the liberal arts or you know the, you know the homeless or the you know you guys, you go, you raise your own funding, and you figure out your own theology, and just don't commit any heinous moral sins and we're behind you and and that's our culture right now, so you know is it the it's, is it our fault as musicians, or are the pastors not doing their job and instead of downing the type of music and wanting to um say, hey, listen, I might not be a fan of this style, but let's make sure lyrically you're on point. You know, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. So what do you expect us to do? You know, I had an email debate over uh, with a pastor that's currently at at Spurgeon's Church in London, and um, I wanted to get some material there, and he sent me his book, and it was completely bashing modern Christian music. And I guess he looked me up and he decided, here, you're going to read this book, and I just found it so funny. My argument to him was like, well, you know, number one, if we use the American music scale instead of the Middle Eastern music scale, you're already veering from the Bible in the, in, in the Psalms. You know, uh, you know. And at one point, all of the stuff and the classical things that you like were pop music at one time. So, like, where does it stop? And 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 can we can we bring in a guitar? Can we do this? So a lot of times. Ministers, this is how I felt being a musician growing up, didn't like the new version of music coming out, so they threw the baby out with the bathwater, so we're writing the best way we can. And now, and then and then you, you, you get saved, and you have these theological, intellectual, bullying watchdogs, and we just start hammering at the artist, and it's just not a fair fight. I mean, we honestly don't even know. And so, yes, I was lost. But we're dealing with a music industry, and those that understand the gospel, that are saved, that are plugged into a church, that are going to Bible studies, and I know artists like that now, they're doing their best, and their music Mm -hmm. is ministry. See, I never saw it as ministry. I was just in a rock band that played music that was an alternative because your parents didn't let you listen to Van Halen.
0: That's you know, an amazing point that you know, the believers that are in the industry, you know, they're just trying to do their best. And you know, there are people there that know the Word of God well. I'm thinking about us as just ordinary Christians. And you know a lot of us don't have a platform at all. Um, or maybe something small like podcasting. That's very popular. Blogging. But those of us who are just regular, everyday, average people... Why would you say that it's important for all of us as Christians to know the Word of God well?
1: I've described it like this. Um, Number one, it's the full counsel of God that brings salvation to the lost. And obviously, I wasn't getting the full counsel of God. You know, um, I look at it like this. Every doctrine is a piece of the puzzle you know those old fashioned puzzles that you would put together on a glass kitchen table in the 70s and you would you know you you'd have it out and you'd you'd work all week on it and you put a few pieces here and there and after a while you would try to match the the image on the box and each doctrine is the same way each doctrine is a piece of the image of Christ you know there's this image in the bible that we should match and it takes some time to put these pieces together sometimes. Sometimes you're, you've kind of got these rogue pieces that are like, man, I know they go right here. I just don't know what angle they are, what, what perspective, how do I turn this, what do I, what do, I do, and you're just kind of scratching your head and you leave it out there. And, and, uh, and, but each doctrine, no matter what it is, no matter how small it is, um, is important, and it's important to know theology because it, it's one piece of the picture of Christ. I think there's going to be people, according to Scripture, that get there and go, Lord, Lord, you know, I did this and I did that. And he's like, depart from me. I never knew you. I, I almost see this picture of, look, I served you. You see this puzzle I put together of all the theology pieces um, of you? I know who you are. And Christ looking at it going, that looks nothing like me. That's how important I think theology is. Um, I, I know we're not going to all get it right. Even R.C. Sproul was like, you know, we, we all have some areas that, um, of, the, of, of the non-essential things uh, that, are prob- that are incorrect, that we all, you know, when we're glorified, we'll completely get the full download of God's full counsel uh, through Christ. But, man, I think if you've got a pretty good match, you know, the pieces are fitting together and you can see the face of Christ in your theology Um, it is just, it is not, you know, you piece it together and you're saved being saved. It shows that God is going to complete his work in us. And I don't know what believers think when we read that scripture that he's going to complete a good work in us. I think, I don't know what we think. Is it, does it mean that he's going to complete a good work in what? I mean, most believers aren't doing anything. So the, the, the complete work in us is, um, Each piece of the puzzle of who Christ is should kill a piece of our flesh. So if you're just a, oh, I just love Jesus, and I don't really care about theology, you're telling me that there are these doctrines out there that could be killing portions of your flesh that are still hanging on to you. And we will be judged by that, not condemned, possibly, but i think that each time this is just something that i that i've explained to my church i said this is not theologically sound this is not i'm not saying this is not doctrine this is just kind of my way of picturing things and kind of you know taking a little bit of creative liberty to go what is what is it going to be like but i think that each thing that we struggle with that's the truth that we are sacrificing saying you know what this part of us needs to die on the cross That struggle and that because it is a struggle. If you're truly a Christian, you're struggling trying to die to self. I think that a lot of that dirt and smut and things will be the very thing that God uses symbolically to be a jewel in our crown. Some of us will have a lot of jewels in our crown, and some of us won't. And I think it is based on how much we know about Christ because that has killed a certain percentage of ourselves here on earth, and that creates the struggle, and the adversity that I believe a lot of Christians don't have. They have self-inflicted pain, but I don't know if they've got gospel pain.
0: Mm. Well, for our listeners who are thinking about going deeper in theology and learning more, do you have any advice on where to start? Do you have a favorite theologian?
1: Well, I love Spurgeon. I mean, I know that's like the hipster thing to say, but I've got even a portion <laughs> of his document. I've got one of his sermons that's got his handwriting on it. I've got it framed up um, in my office, and I went to his church when I was in London. Um, big fan of his writing, his heart, his struggle. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. amazed about how big his church was and how uh, sharp he was on the gospel. Uh, not everything that's like huge and and successful is is bad um, some people you know kind of go down that route i don't so i i i i just love him i think there's enough documentation where i can kind of get a snapshot of him as a person some people you don't some theologians it's hard to get a, a snapshot of who they are as a person and some of their personality mm-hmm. um but uh i would say i would say him um you know i think as far as i think as far as theology um i think you should start with a pastor you trust first um i think you should start there because they have um kind of whittled through a, a lot of the stuff and probably have read a lot of books that were not very productive or some that could kind of lead you down you know a path that you shouldn't and just kind of save you a lot of time um i like to start people you know, with catechisms you know i i love you know the westminster Ah, uh, catechism the heidelberg is dear to my heart uh question 1 my goodness but um i like to start people there i think that's the best place to start you're getting church history you're getting sound theology you're getting a picture of who christ was and his purpose and his work and uh and his service to the to the father um i just um you, you also it's something that is um i believe that we have a you know uh, i think that Our justification is a private relationship with Christ, but I think our sanctification is a public relationship with Jesus, a corporate relationship with Jesus, and a catechism. It it promotes that. It promotes a a, a body. It promotes a um, learning as a group. Um, So I would start there.
2: Yeah, we would definitely second that. We quote the Westminster Standards and Heidelberg quite often on on this show. So I know that you've, I mean, we've covered a lot in a short time already, but you now are doing kind of a ministry out of your home. Can you tell us about that and how that came about?
1: Well, I, because of my background and being homeless for a certain Part of, I didn't know I was homeless. They, they didn't. When I was in Lubbock, Texas, we didn't even have a homeless shelter. There might not even be one there now today. But I was, you know, sleeping in different places and different things. And uh, I was just a kid that needed uh, help. I just needed a little springboard, and uh, and uh, and I didn't have it at all. And I was a little embarrassed about you know, kind of my situation. And so I always wanted to help. And while I was on tour, I always went to and connected with. Um, you know, children's homes and foster kids and things like this. So I told my wife at one point, I was like, man, I really would like to kind of help young people out that were in my situation. Uh, and that's where it started, like years and years and years ago, before I was even a Christian, um, you know, following Christ. And I always thought that maybe I would be the one to stroke the big check, you know, the big giant humongous checks that you hand to a foundation and and uh, do that kind of thing. And it just never manifested. And uh, I never made as much money as uh, I thought I would make to write those kinds of checks. And it, I was like, it's never going to happen. So once the Holy Spirit was in me and once I was just embracing the Word of God and once my life was uh, very healthy, and my marriage was healthy. Me being a, a dad was was healthy, and I kind of had my sea legs under me. Um, man, the Lord called me to the ministry. I can't explain that. I don't want to go into any type of mysticism. I'm not a mystic or charismatic or anything like that, but there is just this pulling that the Lord uses all kinds of things in your thought, your subconscious, or you your emotions or whatever um, that i don 't label the holy spirit they're just they 're just my way my cognitive functions spark me, and just felt this pulling however he does it, and I went to my wife and I said hey i we got to start helping people and she was on board, and we jumped in, so I shut down a marketing it's a little small boutique marketing firm that I had running. And I uh, everybody kind of that was working with me kind of went freelance uh, from there and shut it down within a within a week um, and explained to everybody this is what I'm doing. And so I started making calls to uh, children's homes and detention centers and anybody that I could find online. And I started saying anybody that you guys if you have any team there from the age of 18 to 24 and they punched you or they've spit on you, or they cussed you out, or they stolen something, and they're just in, impossible to handle, send them my way. And my number started floating around, and uh, I went to homeless shelters, and I gave people, I said, hey, I know that uh, you're dealing with homeless, homeless uh, people here, but if you have any kids that are just now landed here, instead of them kind of being lifers and being stuck in this uh, rut, send them my way. And before you know it, man, we had anywhere from 10 to 12 to 14 kids in our living room. I had prostitutes. I had drug addicts, dealers, um, you name it. I had Christians. I had youth kids, um, people from foster care um, that came out of children's homes that aged out. I had all walks of life. And my two children, who were very young, still in diapers, Used to in the morning to get to our room. Used to crawl over these people, and they were raised by them. My two youngest um, and my two oldest probably don't even remember a time without people like this in my home. And we, I, we fed them. Uh, we, um, we clothed them. I gave them my clothes. You know, we, we gave them our food. We started, and I didn't know, and I didn't know how we were going to pay the bills in a month. I mean, we just went in cold like completely like a George Mueller type thing. I didn't even know about George Mueller until somebody kind of dug into my life. and You're George Mueller and the way his faith was, but I had so much faith in who God was that if I served him, that he would at least supply, you know, our needs and people would just find out what was going on. And I would have random people go, here's a thousand dollars. You know, you, you, here's, here's 500, here's 20, here's, I never asked for money. I only asked for money once um, during our tenure here. And, um, you know, we just dug in and we just started providing things that these monetary things that these young people needed. And then we had a ping pong table that we liked to play on. And in the morning, I would gather everybody around and I would uh, open my Bible up and give a little study. Um, and then I would start getting hit with hard questions. Like well, I'm a Muslim. Well, I'm a wicked. Well, I'm an atheist. Well, I'm agnostic. Well, I'm a deist. Well, I'm Catholic. Well, I'm a Baptist. Well, I'm a, you know I'm a Church of Christ. I'm a. Uh, I mean, you you name it, we've had it. And uh, I'm I'm Buddhist. I'm this. I'm that. I'm gay. I'm drug addict. I'm. I mean, and so. I was just struggling at the beginning, but I had to, I would go like, you know, it's a great question. Let me get back to you. It's a great question. Let me get back to you. And I learned on them. Um, I got to learn with them. Uh, I got to learn right alongside. I mean, I remember the the, some of the kids at the very beginning, I'm like, we learned it together. And so I would come across resources. Matt slick, by the way, sent me the mother of all notebooks for free years and years ago. And it had like gave me a great breakdown of all different types of worldviews and stuff. And so um, I did that and he was wonderful at that time because we, I mean, I left everything. Um, we we uh we we let go of our lifestyle and the whole deal. Um, and we got to a point where we were in a pretty nice home. And we had a homeowners association and we had all these kids lying around. I used to tell them, I said, you know, that were just running around. I said, okay, don't go out during the daytime. You know, I these we're gonna get kicked out of here. And then we got provided uh, somebody opened up some land for us and said, "Hey you can come here you' can come there and now uh, we're in Denison, Texas and we're at the travelers hotel it was it's a historic hotel uh, in eighteen ninety three um, and you know but along the way somebody helped us set up a nonprofit along the way we got funding along the way we got a building and we we did the when it, when people when people are like I'm just looking you know I'm trying to find what you know, God's will in my life. And I just, I'm called to ministry. I just don't know what to do. Dude, the janitorial, you know, positions in the kingdom are all open. I mean, there's so many that you can fill. And all you've got to do is just pick up a shovel, pick up a broom, get your hands dirty, get to work, get on get on the same level with these people, and just start preaching the gospel. And, um, you know, there's there's things that we've done that, to help um, you know, keep my kids safe, keep my wife safe and, and things like that. And we've had some crazy incidences at the very beginning when we were kind of clueless. Um, you know, we were all heart, no head. And so we had to learn, I mean, I've been punched in the face. I've been spit on, I've been cussed at, I've been choked out. I've been all kinds of things when we started, because we just didn't know how to properly interview people. And we didn't have any boundaries really set. And we just started raw. And the church, once again, for the most part, you know, nobody wants to help. I mean, if it's not birthed out of their denomination and out of the certain convention and they won't support it, you know, they, it just, it looked rogue. It looked dirty. It looked, you know, just bizarre. It looked almost cultish at the beginning because it was in our home. We had all these kids and, and we weren't, man, we just really wanted to serve God. And it's just so wild that, you know, if you're radical today at all, if you're just out there and just completely sold out and, if the the Holy Spirit just happens to turn you in a direction that lights your wick on fire that never burns out, um, there's not a lot of support. I mean, you know, you're just looked at as a madman. Um, And so, you know, we were alone a lot until the Lord brought the right amount of people, the right kinds of people and said, hey, why don't we set up a nonprofit for you? Hey, I'll pay for it. Another person said, Hey, you know, we'll set up this and we'll do that and set up a website and we'll do your, and you know, now we look legit. We look trustworthy. You know, now we look solid, but along the way, no help. All we had was the Lord and just these type of dark horses that came along the way that said, Hey, I mean, we, I'm telling you, there were, there were people that, uh, you know, I got, I would get turned down for 20 bucks from a church for support but I would have I'd have gay people give when the church was denying. So, you know, you learn through that stuff, you try not to let it harden you and you become jaded and stuff like that, but um it was quite a struggle and it is still a struggle. Uh we we look at closing the doors almost every month and it's been like that for almost 10 years now. We live by faith. I don't know where the next meal is going to come from. Uh, I don't know if the lights are going to stay on. If they're going to be on next month, and there's just so much adversity because people they find it more. I guess I don't know. It's it's just more attractive, or it's it you know to, to do things in another country and and help missionaries there. And I think we should, but I think we got to start in our own backyard first. Look at our generation. Look at the where. Um, the next generation of kids, our next future is headed. And you don't think we need help here. But it's hard because, you know, the dollar doesn't go very far here. It's hard being a missionary. I'm not viewed as an American missionary, but I am. And, you know, you can write a check for a 100 bucks, and it's gone today. It doesn't last very long. It, it won't make you—we don't have a feel-good ministry where you're going to come in. I mean, you're going to come in and maybe the guys won't like you. You know, maybe the, they, maybe they've got some words for you. Maybe you're a plastic Christian and they're going to tell you you're fake. I mean, it's just not very, it's just not very like, I tell people all the time, I say, have you ever seen the blindside movie? They're like, yeah. I said, nothing like that. Nothing like that at all. It's very dirty. It's very gritty. And, uh, and it's very wearing when you're trying to also keep your marriage healthy, have trying to fight for privacy as, as, as people um, trying to raise your kids around critical eyes they are looking for any little thing uh, to make themselves feel that they're not as bad as the Bible says that they are. So many dynamics that uh, I really haven't even ever talked about, but it is worth it to see those come to Christ. I mean, I've got some young men here. I've got a, a guy here right now that is uh, literally went dead on the gurney from a drug overdose and was, of course, they brought the paddles out and popped his heart back into, uh, in, into rhythm. And, um, you know, he came and flew down here and gave his life to Christ and is discipled. And, uh, he's up on his feet and he's, uh, he's an amazing member of the church. And, you know, it, when you see things like that, it's, uh, it's for encouragement to keep moving. We're still doing it. I'm, I'm here right now at the, you know, at the ministry.
2: Well, I know that um, a lot of people would like to know where they can find you, and I wanted to mention a few things. First of all, com. you can find all of, all of Pete's stuff. What you can find there right now is a lot of sermons. I listened to a couple in the last couple of weeks, so you can find his sermons, but you're also starting a podcast, right?
1: I am. I think that there are—I'm uh, doing it for a few reasons. Um, I have, you know, I have sermons that I've been posting up and I've just done it basically for my kids and my grandkids. And just to kind of leave that behind where people, you know, my family at some point might go, what did our great grandfather believe, you know? And so those will be archived. And then for our church members that are sick or on vacation and just miss a certain, um, you know, sermon or series that we're going through uh, for them to tap in, but it's there. And um, it's, you know, it's 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 ready to go, um, but I, I'm thinking about also doing a another podcast where it is some sidebar conversations of certain things about um, this current worldview and the Christian culture, and you know how I think a lot of things are. We're, I think we're missing a lot of application. I I have met. A lot of people and a very I scratch my head at this, but I think it's a need there are a lot of people out there that have really good theology and bad character I mean if you worked with them if you lived with them if you were if you were you know close enough to trade paint you would really find out just how thin people are um, based on how they're offended how they can check out of a relationship so fast, how they can just kind of just, just trash, uh, put something in the trash real quick and just move on because uh, they're, they have a low pain tolerance for things. And, you know, they're, they're missing this connection between theology and character. And I think a lot of it is, especially in the reform circles, because there's not a lot of churches that we can really get involved in. And there is a big, we weigh real heavy on the heady side that when it comes to application, I think pastors are really good about giving that application at the end. But I think that pastors, and I'll speak as a pastor now. Pastors are very. Um, we, I, we are, um, we are, we are on a scope. We're on a, in a microscope because we are preaching a gospel that we can not uphold. That's the toughest thing that preachers have to do every Sunday, and sometimes the people. In the congregation, because we're preaching it so bold, believe that we really believe we're upholding this, and so now it's you, for you to hear it, and it's not. We're usually preaching to ourselves, but in that we have we, you know, um, we do have eyes on us at times, and it is very, it is very normal for pastors and their wives and their families to get burned to feel traded against to, you know, especially in small churches, and this is why you kind of get the big plastic church pastor that you really cannot connect with, and then you get the small pastor that's just, um, you know, just frustrated, and of course that comes out in his sermons at times, and I think that there's these, there's, I think that there are conversations that need to happen so that both aren't misread, so that the uh, that's so that the small pastor can be open and be vulnerable and remain that way without the church hurting them and allowing them to be human and allow them to go through their sanctification process and then allow some of these bigger pastors uh, to be accessible and not have this fear. I mean, pastors in their in our private circles realize that we can't be open with everybody in our church, and that is just a shame. So the podcast is going to be that even if I'm crucified over it, I'm going to have conversations. uh, And I've been talking with some people that we're going to open up these things and to give an inside look about how how, how do we handle relationships? How do we handle being vulnerable? How do we handle our theology? And how do we handle how we fall short? And how do we make it applicable? And then just the Christian growth is just not heady. There are so many other dynamics um, that we could possibly, that we're missing. And the proof behind that is we're not leading anybody to Christ. I mean, if I, when I sit down, I go out and evangelize a lot. I, uh, I've got a seven foot cross that somebody built for me uh, that we, you know, t- I took the idea off of Arthur Blessed when I was a kid. I remember that. I remember this dude walking around with that. And so um, I dragged that thing on wheels uh, down my, you know, Main Street here in Denison, Texas. And the conversations as I'm out evangelizing, um, you know, most people, most Christians don't go to church that profess Christianity, and the ones that do go to church, most of them cannot remember the last time they brought somebody to the Lord, at least to the cross. And so there is this disconnect with head knowledge and doing that passion there, there's some conversations that need to happen because Paul said, follow me like I follow Christ. And that following isn't just, well, know your Bible, but how do we know it? Like in what ways do we know our Bible? And the proof of that is fruit. We're going to be judged by our fruit. We're going to be judged by our production, what we're producing, every believer. And I want to produce I want to produce out of gratefulness, not out of works. But it is that it is works that proves I have been saved. So, I think that I'm going to open up these conversations, and I'm going to probably do them unedited, and they're probably going to get me in a lot of trouble. But at some point, to you know, for God's glory and for man's sanctification, I think that um, some people need to be vulnerable.
2: Well, we'll we'll um, link in our episode notes where everybody can find you and you'll have information about that new podcast on your website, which we will link. And then if you want to hear his sermons, they are on there already. And I guess anything else that that's kind of your catch all website, right? Yeah.
1: uh, Pete Orta.com is, is, and uh, you know what? Um, I'm a typewriter collector and I still use a typewriter. Uh, I'm on an, a 1938 Erica 5. Um, this week is kind of my favorite. And I love letters. I mean, if anybody, any of your viewers, just wants to put a pen to paper and write a letter, um, you know, my address is 300 East Main Street, Denison, Texas, D E N I S O N, Texas, 75021. Hey, give me a write. Tell me about uh, your favorite thing. Uh, about Christ and what he's done for you. And uh, and I'll write back. So you can find it on the web or you can do it the old fashioned way.
0: That's pretty cool, Pete. Thank you so much for sharing with us.
1: Yeah, man, I've had fun. How about you
0: guys?
2: Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. We appreciate you spending so much time with us and to our listeners. um, What we talked about in the episode will be in the episode notes and we will see you next week.